0: It is our great pleasure to welcome you to this event presented by the Network for Arts Administrators of Color and the Boston Athenaeum.
1: We're so pleased to be introducing the accomplished panelists and artists feature- featured in tonight's event, Empower Her, Black Women in the Arts. First, may we please uh, have a round of applause for Allegra Fletcher, who can- <laughs> yeah, <she's gone. laughs> Thank you to Allegra for her beautiful music uh, kicking off the evening. Uh, Before we begin, please note the two emergency exits marked at the front and rear of this room. And please take a moment to silence your cell phones.
0: Um, As stewards for the Network for Arts Administrators of Color Boston, it's an honor to be able to host you here in this beautiful space with our incredible partners at the Athenaeum for an event that features incredible black femme artistry and highlights the work of NAC membership. For those of you unfamiliar, NAC Boston, a program of Arts Boston, is a gathering space made for and by people of color working in the arts. We are currently over 350 members strong, 10 times the size we were at our humble beginnings in 2016 when NAC was created to highlight and support the incredible POC talent in the greater Boston arts and culture sector. We offer monthly events, including public ones like this and private affinity social spaces for arts administrators of color. We provide skill-based workshops um, for our membership and disseminate job postings, grant opportunities, and upcoming POC-focused arts events and offerings through our popular listserv, the members of which can be seen all on the Arts Boston website in our NAC directory, which includes names, photos, current titles, email addresses, and LinkedIn pages of every single member. This past December, we closed a mentorship and sponsorship pilot program funded by the Mass Cultural Council and look forward to expanding our
1: offerings as our membership continues to grow. Um, And speaking of membership, could our members of the network uh, please raise your hands right now if you're a member of NAC Boston? Hello. Yes. Uh, So for any POC arts admins in the audience who are not current members of NAC, uh, these are your potential peers uh, in the network. So it's free to join. Please head over to artsboston.org to sign up today. Uh, There's all kinds of perks, uh, including currently a NAC-exclusive conversation with Camille A. Brown on Friday, March 6th, that you can still sign up for. Uh, NAC members, I'm looking at you, (laughs) (laughs) and potential members. Um, Not a POC Arts admin? Totally
0: okay. You can still support NAC Boston in a variety of ways, including showing up at public events like this one. Um, And please keep an eye out for our third Thursday takeover of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum on Thursday, April 16th from 6 to 9 p.m. Which will also feature NAC Boston artists performing and engaging with the collection and Boston's Apollo, their special exhibit. There's information on that little table you passed on your way in. Tickets are now on sale, so we better see you there.
1: Uh, On behalf of our incredible hosts, uh, in March, the Athenaeum will explore two themes in its event programming. The first, in honor of Women's History Month and International Women's Day, is called Women, Agency, and the Meaning of Home. It will present Boston women writers who explore themes of power, displacement, and multicultural identities. Writer Grace uh, Tullison kicks off the series on Tuesday, March 3rd, in this room at noon to speak about her memoir, The Body Papers. The second series, Curator's Choice, spotlights the Athenaeum's fascinating special collections. On March 4th and 6th, curator and tonight's moderator, uh, Theo Tyson, will explore fashion, design, and women's suffrage in two events that draw on the Athenaeum's rich holdings.
0: And we should probably mention that free events like our gathering tonight are made possible by the Boston Athenaeum's members. And we are so grateful to them for their support of the library and all that happens here. If you are a visitor this evening, welcome. And if you are interested in joining the Athenaeum, they would be delighted to welcome you as a member. So we have one more bit of business before we introduce our panelists and artists for the evening. To welcome new members, the Athenaeum is raffling off a free one-year membership and two free day passes this evening. Please raise your hand if the ticket you received at check-in matches the one we pull from the bowl, which we'll be pulling. (laughs) That's Elsa, she's the best. Um, So we are going to be pulling um, a raffle ticket and then Elsa uh, will uh, be presenting those. Um, So while we uh, get that up here, um, oh, are we're doing it now. It's happening live. (laughs)
1: Um, All right, Marissa? (laughs)
0: Okay, and we have not lucky number three seven four zero
2: eight zero. Hey. Yay! You win! <laughs>
0: Incredible. You have to pull. Oh, we are we? How many are we pulling? We have uh, one more day pass and one more free membership. Okay, mm-hmm. great. Um, so, Which one is this? We're gonna do day passes first. Okay. Day passes go to three seven four zero eight nine. Three seven four zero eight nine. All right. Snooze you lose. Okay, uh three seven four (laughs) zero eight (laughs) one. all right here we go yeah you're right destiny's right we'll do some more mixing okay three seven four zero nine two hey we're just going through these tickets all right the last membership okay um and this is three seven four zero five nine Yay! Mm -hmm. I'm changing the order of operations. (laughs) We have uh, one more. This is a surprise. Elsa, please don't go anywhere. I'm going to need you to come back. Elsa. Elsa, come back here. Um, she, I just want to give a special thank you to Elsa. She's amazing. It's her last day at the Boston Athenaeum. She's been an incredible partner to us. Um, she made this event possible. Um, and so, on behalf of Arts Boston and Act Boston, we just wanted to give you. Congratulations. <laughs> Elsa is moving. Oh, Elsa is writing the Nature Conservancy in Portland. She's the best. <laughs> And we just want to give you a special shout out, so since you're up here, thank you. Um, uh, the, only, the other thank yous I would like to include are for the City of Boston for their ongoing support, our funders, the Mass Cultural Council, the NEA, and Bank of America, um, and again, to our partners here at the Boston Athenaeum. Um, and now i is gonna tell you a little bit about the program.
1: Yes, so uh, to get things started, in your program, you will find tonight's lineup and bios of our participants. Artist Amanda Shea will start with a spoken word piece entitled Resilience and Origin. Next, the Athenaeum's Polly Thayer Star Fellow in American Art and Culture, Theo Tyson, will lead a discussion with women committed to empowering black women artists. Our panelists include Lindsey Allen Cox, the director, <laughs> thank you, uh, the director of theater arts for the Boston Center for the Arts, Catherine Morris. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Founder and executive director of Boston Art and Music Soul Bamsfest, and Courtney D. Sharp, the director. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> the director of cultural planning for the City of Boston. Please note that there is a ch- an unfortunate change in the program as Victoria Awkward is ill and unable to perform tonight. Um, but please please check out her work uh, at victoriaawkward.com and make sure you see this proud NAC member when and where you can. Uh, after the discussion and Q&A we are thrilled to have artists and Miss Massachusetts 2020 Sabrina Victor sing A Change Is Gonna Come. Please refer to your program to learn more about all of our evening's participants.
0: And now without further ado we would like to welcome Amanda Shea.
3: Good evening. Good evening. I'm not used to a microphone, but we're going to work it out tonight. How's everybody doing? I have changed my two poems, uh, very impromptu-esque, but um, tonight's event is about empower her. So I'm going to tell a story about my own triumphs and my own empowerment, and then what I see black women as, and that is very resilient. So, I don't have a title yet, but here we go. Everybody doing good though? Okay, all eyes are on me, I, it's, it's showtime, it's showtime. <laughs> I used to love my body, flexible like the air of my sign. Like w- lightweight, I could hold myself up. Back bends, front flips, my inner animal soared until I lost an ovary. Felt like I was no longer woman mother. She birthed my sister at 35 My cyst said no more before then surgical tongs wish it were only a cavity to fill this hurts Losing a piece of myself trying to find the peace in it thought it was over now my neck Carried weight of men, wedlock almost broke me, my vertebrae is no longer straight, like my gender, non-binary, contortionists don't conform, I was a gymnast, flew over obstacles, balanced light beams, my disc skipped somewhere, nerves pinched, Blood clots form pretty circles. The ring around my finger reminds me it burns. When I lift my hands to the sky, the right goes numb. Down to my pointed finger. Childhood, I sucked my thumb. Instinct knew I'd miss the feeling. Surgery again. Every time there's a risk. Every time there's a risk tired of looking down tunnels I can't scream my voice is an echo etched in my mind used to hate the sound now I grasp it capture every inflection lungs collapse at the image of me yelling I'm voiceless invades my power silences my journey I'm mad I'm hurt I'm pissed why is it so dark I loathe the light it teases me tells me to look within myself while doctor are taking away body parts, how can I, as a black woman, feel whole? Thank you. So my next piece is called Resilience. The same goes when the tough get going the going get tough must and I have not had met my mother the scars she bears are invisible only those with the third eye could see you see her body is strong agile but weakened by her experiences black women are to only be strong no complaints no check-ins only check-ups to ensure the body is intact heavy, the head that wears the crown, but I see it slipping. Weight on her shoulders, she carries worlds around. We simply orbit in her universe, even when she's lost in her own space. Who will carry her burdens? I mean, her anger, her depression, her anxiety, her bipolar, her wallet. She don't need no man, but society's price tags tells her different stories. One's filled with fairy tales unbeknownst to her. For she's a dollar in a dream mentality. Don't worry, I got this swag. I can do better all by myself. No two cents to rub together, but rubbed out meals. Who will nourish her soul? It's tired. Been beaten. But not by life, by family. Who cast her away, didn't want to help her rewrite her wrongs. Running away from generational trauma, she's out of breath. Panic attacks her nervous system. Like a baby, she births, she sells Sue's. Resilient. Black women overcome so many obstacles. And when asked, how are you? They reply, my mother replies, I'm fine. Thank you.
4: Before I even say good evening, can we please give another round of applause for that amazing... I'm, I'm going to reiterate the fact that we are all here and in front of you because our beloved Elsa Fogg Vernon understood that this was a necessary conversation for the entire community of Boston to bear witness to. So thank you, Elsa. So let's dive in. We are fortunate to have three amazing practitioners, professionals, producers in the art space in Boston, and we're just going to jump into the idea of empowering her, and that her being a black woman in the arts. So what does supporting black women in the arts look like for each of you in your respective fields? That's a hard question. Um, hi,
2: I'm Lindsay Allen Cox, Director of Theater Arts at BCA. Um, Local local actor type, I guess. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a little bit of a cold, so I apologize in advance. Um, I think supporting black women in my field, which is uh, the field of theater mostly, is uh, producing work written by black women. Um, there are so many wonderful plays in the world that are underproduced, um, that are written by black women. And... That work needs to be seen. And so oftentimes we go with what we know. I think there are also um, young POC and black playwrights uh, in the city whose work isn't being produced who need people to uh, give them a little bit of love. And I think that's um, something that is really missing from the Boston theater scene. I had the, the luxury of performing in a show recently written by Tanya Barfield who is black and queer Uh, And it was a really amazing experience to work on a play that was written by someone who represents who I am. Um, And I think that that representation really matters. And the more that we can get these theater companies here to invest their time and energy in uh, these types of plays, the better off we're all going to be in the long run.
5: Hello, everyone. My name is Courtney Sharp, and I work for the City of Boston, Director of Cultural Planning. So the question is, how do we see ourselves advocating for black women in the arts? So for me, I feel that it's really important to make sure that communities that haven't had access are able to stay and thrive. And I think one of the big challenges of Boston right now is economic opportunity, economic prosperity uh, for all, not just some. And the real challenges of being able to stay in the city and produce art in the city are very hard. based on these economic inequalities that have separated communities throughout much of the history of Boston, well, all the history of Boston, and really working to help change that and advocating for more financial resources, whether that's granting opportunities, whether that's the creation of more housing opportunities to actually be able to protect the folks who are already here and to really be able to preserve the the culture that exists and to highlight the culture that exists because I think that the work that I'm trying to do, that my office is trying to do, is in large part cultural preservation and highlighting it. Because I feel that the city of Boston uh, is not always perceived as being a very diverse place, even though it is. And so we see a lot of our work as really highlighting the diversity that's already here and being able to make sure that we can maintain it, enhance it, and help people feel more comfortable here. A lot of work in the arts is um, expressions of lived experience, expressions of pain, it can be a process of therapy in some ways, the act of creation. And so to be able to support people in all assets or all factors of creation is what we're trying to do. And that brings me pleasure trying to be a part of that story.
4: Okay.
6: Katherine T. Morris, I wear, thank you. Um, I wear two hats tonight. Uh, Now the Director of Public Programming at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, thank you. And also the Founder and Executive Director of Boston Art Music Soul Fest. So, supporting black women in the arts and just in general my whole thing as a human being is to get to know black women because every journey is different. We may have similar characteristics, but how we got to where we are is very, very different. And I, as a human being, can no longer assume that as a black woman, we have the same narrative. And as artists, um, I'm not an artist myself. I advocate for creative people That's my role in the world. I have figured it out what I want to be when I grow up. (laughs)
4: I'm
6: going to advocate, because that's a thing. (laughs) But in my practices, um, founding my own organization was really about ensuring that Boston is seen as a truly world-class city for arts and culture. And part of that is, is that I had to show my narrative as a native. Boston is going through a lot of changes, and I wanted people to remember or see or experience the nostalgia that I had growing up, being born here where all of my family is, and being able to introduce that to people who are either staying here, living here, going to school here, or want to thrive here. So Bands Fest as an organization, even with all of our programming, was really about that narrative, and two making sure that black and brown artists can be seen in spaces that are often not open to them. So, I did it my way. It's worked. I'm very proud of that. Now, with my hat at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, when I, before I got hired, I walked in the building, I said, I need complete creative autonomy, And it was the first time in my career that I've ever advocated for that. Mm -hmm. And that's because when I walked into the gardener, I realized, and I said to the person who hired me, I'm gonna make magic here, but you have to give me the full creativity to do that. Mm -hmm. And please know that the people who walk through this door are gonna be black and brown, first and foremost. And I'm still at the gardener, so. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so with my role at The Gardener, in terms of supporting black women, there's very few, okay? And what is important to me is that the artists that I invite through the door is that for them to know they're not alone Mm -hmm. in being their best, most creative and vulnerable self in an all-white institution. So being able to set them up for success in terms of here are the Spatial limitations, but the creativity is all of yours. And being able to give that freedom is what has allowed me to support black women and black artists in Boston.
4: So, th- this is a great, beautiful segue. Thank you. you. <laughs> so, Lindsay, you talked a little bit about making sure that productions by black women artists are possible and seeing. Courtney, you talked about the financing that is required for these, the the space of creativity that's necessary. Those are all very different. So what does success actually look like when that happens? Mm. We're going to start with the easy questions.
2: I I mean, to, to... To piggyback off of uh, some of what Catherine said, I think for me, success looks like, um, you know, uh, like, so last Tuesday night, was it this Tuesday? Was it just a few days ago? Last Tuesday. I don't know what day it is. Um, (laughs) I closed the show on Sunday, so I have no idea of where I am. Uh, Last Tuesday, we had an event at the BCA. Uh, It was the third installment of an event that I curate called Hella Black, and... It was amazing, and this time I curated it with my friend Candice, who's there. Hey, Candice, wave. Uh, and so success looked like a, a black box at the Boston Center for the Arts, a white-led institution um, full of black and brown and queer people uh, watching a hip-hop concert performed by six of Boston's hottest female emcees. Um, that was success. Success was uh, black and brown men and women and and everyone else in between and all over um, occupying this space that maybe they felt like it wasn't a space they could occupy typically, right? Um, And coming in there and being their full selves. I mean, I think for me, um, being unapologetically black all the time is really important. And uh, there, was, there was nothing more unapologetically black than last Tuesday night at the BCA in the black box for real. Uh, just go on the internet and find videos. <laughs> so I think success for me looks like you know, brown folks occupying spaces and, and taking up space and, and being their full selves and unapologetically their selves. And, and that that can look many ways. There's not one way like Catherine said, to be a black woman. Um, we all come up here with like a lot of different things going on. And so I think for me, representations of all the ways it, it can look and feel to be a black woman and a black person in general is, is, is success to me if you can just get that out there in the world and show everybody.
4: So, so before Catherine and Courtney, you, you dive into that question, part of this is the idea is that none of us are monolithic voices when it comes to being black women we do have a shared experience, but our actual lived experiences are all different. As humans, we all encounter the world in different ways, but we do share similarities. So just keeping that in mind with the, with the answer.
5: So my answer is actually somewhat similar, but it is nuanced. So for me, what resonated was occupying space. And for me, success looks like ownership, because I feel like with ownership of space, it provides so much more freedom to do whatever it is you want to do, to take risk. And I think that to produce art, it is... Helpful if you have a high risk tolerance and can actually make that take the risk of doing whatever it is you're trying to do Uh, And that can be facilitated by knowing that you don't have to worry about where you're going to sleep or where you're going to produce your work And so having the community the network the resources to make sure that people can stay and that they can own it and that it is secure I think that security would be what success would look like
6: That was deep That was so deep.
5: Okay. So
6: there are two current examples I can give of what success looks like for me um, around supporting black women. One recently was a show I did at the Gardner called Braveheart. And it featured Amanda Shea, Valerie Stevens, and Portia O. And the, the, the kind of subtitle of that was uh, Storytelling from a Soulful Place. And um, the reason why this example I'm sharing with you is so important is because it was the first time that these black women were working together and were asked to go deep about who they are, on how they entered, how they arrived, and where they want to go. And then to be in the Garden Museum, which to the community is, well, I should say the hood, that it, it's a museum that reflects a privileged white woman, so why would these black women see themselves in that space? That was a very deep moment for me. And what I said to them in a very subliminal way is that you are protected, you can be yourself here, and if anyone has a problem with it, they can come see me. And that show was so powerful. I learned more about these black women than I could ever learn in reading their bio, seeing them on YouTube, or reading a book. They had no filter. And because of that, there were tears, there were hugs, but most importantly, they left their soul to bear for everyone, no matter what your racial, gender, background, didn't matter, could see. And the people that walked out of there felt so much more empowered by their vulnerability and being who they are. So that's one example. The second one is it was told to me by my festival producer for Bands Fest that the people who make the festival happen are all black women. And I didn't even realize it at all. My graphic designer, all that fun stuff you see on social media, all black women. My festival producer, a black woman, the person who takes care of my ch- my child, a black woman, <laughs> my mama <clears throat> But long story short, for my festival producer to call me out on that, they're staying because they believe in my vision and then I'm here to support them wholeheartedly and they stick with me so.
4: Beautiful. Thank you. So we, we've said a lot about occupying space, mm-hmm. which is, is huge. It's occupying space, but not just occupying space, but taking up space and being given the space and offered the space to be unapologetically black. One of the things that I know that I've encountered, and I'm sure that you've encountered as well, is trying to figure out if there's a, a tempering that has to happen in certain spaces. Uh, Zanelli Maholi is a visual activist from South Africa who often comments on the idea of blackness is sometimes okay if it's, if it's trendy if it's something that is relative to a particular item in a special collection or just a particular exhibition. I can say this for myself, and I think I can say this for everyone on the panel. We are black women 365 days of the year. So this is not something that we take on and put off for the sake of performance, for the sake of financing something, for the sake of producing an event. So I want to hear a little bit about what does being black mean to you and the work that you do? Mm -hmm. Dang. Mm
2: -hmm. Do I have to go first again? Yeah,
4: sure.
6: I think you have to go first,
2: Catherine. Catherine
4: danged it first. Catherine gets to go first on this one.
6: I'm sorry. Can not repeat the question? (laughs)
4: The (laughs) most amazing stall tactic ever. (laughs) And and you know what? Let me let me actually preface that with the idea of sometimes having the label of being black, the label of being a woman. You're not allowed to just be an artist Mm. or just be a producer or just be a curator. There's this, there's a, a reductive quality sometimes. That comes with it. Like we can't just say that Lindsay is an amazing actress. She's an amazing black actress, or she's an amazing black queer actress. there It becomes a qualifier. So how do you exist in that space but exist beyond that space?
6: Well, the first thing that is very obvious outside of my skin color is I'm six foot six. Yes. okay. Yes, never played basketball, don't ask that question. (laughs) And um, being tall and being black and being a woman, being from Boston, being a mother, (laughs) being the youngest, um, for me I always think about the shoulders that I stand on and what am I gonna do differently to change the narrative as I move forward because, yeah, this this doesn't go away. It might tent in the summer, um, but I don't look at it as a qualifier anymore because I don't dwell in that space. I choose not to dwell in that space anymore. As a kid growing up, that was just always the most obvious thing to point out. And I've had to put my contributions and my skills and my capability, what I believe in, why I physically take up space as a tall woman, why I have my feet planted in the ground so strong so that it's not the only thing that we're talking about in the room of being the first. Because sometimes being the first is the hardest part ever. So for me, being, being black is literally being my most vulnerable self 365 days a year night and day does not matter, but that know that you're going to get the wholesome part of me, not just the layers.
5: So. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Same, ditto. <laughs> yes, agreed. What she said. <laughs> I, oh, what does being black mean to me? I mean, it's, It's who I am, it's how I show up in spaces, it means that I'm an advocate, um, and I didn't come upon it consciously, it's just how I've lived my life. I think growing up in a black home, but mostly in a white environment, also shaped my identity in a way where it was both very obvious, I'm very obviously black, but to me in some ways it wasn't all the time and so I feel a mixed benefit in that I always feel comfortable just showing up as myself well not always sometimes you know a little self conscious but generally I feel empowered to be myself and I feel like to me now as I'm coming more into my consciousness the older I get about how other people perceive my blackness, because that's a different thing. Uh, It's something for me to lean into and use that to my advantage and for the advantage of other black people. Um, Not that I need to represent everybody, but that if I'm able to be in a space where maybe other people aren't, then it's an opportunity for me to bring others into that space as well. And really, yeah, opening those doors to other folks, I think, So I was born in Washington, D.C., in the city of D.C., and when I was eight, right before third grade, I moved to the suburbs of Houston, Texas, which at the time was a very white place. Um, And sometimes I think about how my life might have been different if I had stayed in Washington, D.C. at that time. Um, now it's a totally different place, but then when I left, um, it was it didn't have the best reputation, and so I make a lot of decisions, or I've historically made a lot of decisions in my life about what should I be doing to help advance the, the life of the people who I could have been if I hadn't had moved, because it was certainly a material difference when I moved to the suburbs, uh, and I, I think about that, and I have... Thought about that a lot over the course of my career and how I can show up for all the other me's and yeah for all the other me's and for my little brother I mean my brother's in high school so what what can I be doing and so that's what motivates me is my family
2: this is a really hard question um because uh, I am definitely black first uh, that's what I am uh, and I'm a woman uh, and I'm queer, and I'm Jewish. So there's a lot. <laughs> there's layers. a lot of layers there. <laughs> um, so uh, you know i I think being what being black means to me in in my career as a, a theater artist is telling the stories of my people, um, and some of those stories. Uh, are maybe hard to hear, uh, may have trauma in them, uh, but some of those stories are literally just stories. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that that is what being black means to me, being able to um, perform in, in, in plays uh, where I can just be myself, my authentic self, and then it's not always a story about slavery or civil rights or struggling or death. Um, but that, that, that sometimes it's, it's a production of the three musketeers where I, I'm Athos and I'm a black woman and Aramis is an Asian American woman. And the other guy whose name I can't remember, uh, (laughs) the character, I remember the actor's name. Um, he's, he's an African American male, right? Haitian American male. Um, and so being able to bring those stories and, and just to, uh, to, to, to have that representation on stage is, is so important. Um, and I think that's a big part of what being black to me means in my career as an actor and my career as a curator. It's pretty much the same thing. I mean, I, I, I'm like Issa Rae. I'm voting for everybody black, right? I'm rooting for everybody black. And so I, I really do prioritize and I, and I'm not apologetic about it and my job, um, <laughs> I let them know, like, I'm going to do events for black and brown people, and that's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to prioritize that work because somebody's got to do it, and I'm here to do it because I'm in this position or I can do it. Um, and so I really am, and I, I don't mince words about it. I use my position to amplify black and brown voices I use my position to amplify the voices of women and non-binary and gender non-conforming folks, and I use my position to amplify the voices of queer people. That is what I do, and I don't apologize about it. And so far, they've let me do it, so we'll see.
4: Right. <laughs> <laughs> no pink slips so far. No pink slips. We'll see. So this idea of being unapologetically black...
5: Oh, good. Please. Oh, I wanted to add one more thing. I feel like as I'm evolving as a person, I think another aspect of what being black means to me is leaning into like the joy of triumph because there's so many reasons why as a people, we could have opted out or just been downtrodden. But it's like, but no, we're still here and we're still doing it and looking good while doing it too. So I I think that's really inspirational too.
2: (laughs)
4: <laughs> um, th- there is that idea of opting out. I mean, we can talk about the Igbo people of South Carolina that decided that they were going to commit suicide rather than be enslaved. So there, there is always that opt-out thing that we have in the back of our mind. So with that idea and thinking about being unapologetically black, can you... Can you recall a time, can you share a time where you felt like you may have been trying to make people feel more comfortable with your blackness? We talked about (laughs) occupying spaces a little bit earlier. We are in a space that was not typically, has not typically been occupied by black bodies. There are a lot of spaces in Boston and across the world that have not welcomed black and brown people. And I know personally, you're you're aware of the space that you take up. You're aware that people are seeing your skin and nothing else. Mm-hmm. Has there ever been a time that you may have felt like you needed to shrink, that you may have felt like you needed to be bigger because of the space that you were in?
5: Uh, I guess that's my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> um, I <I've>, Right? I was <laughs> trying to think of a specific example, and was like, I... I don't know. Um, I think in looking back on my life, so when I moved to Texas when I was eight, so it was the beginning of third grade, I remember I used to laugh a lot. Um, I was loud, or at least these are things I was getting in trouble for, but I think in some ways it was me trying to find a way to relate to this environment that was very different for me, and no one explained my environment to me. So I grew up in DC, in a very black environment, like kindergarten, first grade, and then I went to a Catholic school that had a few people who were not black in it, and then I went to Texas, and I was like the diversity, and I was like, oh. And I feel like it was just something that over time, I probably, or definitely, moderated my behavior in certain ways to feel to make other people feel more comfortable in ways that I can't even explain to you now. But I know as a way of getting through the experience of being in this totally different environment, my family wasn't preparing me for it. My friends, I mean, kids, they're not going to tell you what your experience is. So that wasn't a conversation that was happening either. So it's me wading through this new community and making friends and trying to figure out what the norms of that place were. And so I feel like one of the things that I've... Developed over time as being a chameleon in different spaces and not that I'm ever not myself But trying to pick up on the cues of what is normative for whatever space I'm in and I think that's how it shows up for me
2: Yeah, um, I agree. It's been my whole life. I mean code-switching. I speak two languages faux sure. oh, um, <laughs> show <laughs> I just did it in that sentence <laughs> um, We sorry. are all bilingual <laughs> as black women <laughs> Um, But I think, uh, you know, a couple of of examples, I mean, I feel like when I uh, am in meetings with with people that uh, I I find myself thinking, boy, this is what I really want to say and how I really want to say it, but I know if I do that, it will be perceived as aggressive or whatever other negative connotation. Angry (laughs) Angry black woman even though the, the white woman across from me is, is saying things in a way that if I, said, you know, if I said them, they'd be perceived differently. So I struggle with that a little bit because if you haven't gathered from listening to me in the past couple of minutes, I say what I want to say. I say, you know, Lindsay says what she means, she means what she says. So it is hard for me sometimes to, uh, to apply that filter as I've gotten older, I guess. I just uh, care a little bit less. Um, but certainly, in the early stages of my career, I was really, really mindful of not coming across as the angry black woman in the room, uh, even if what I was saying was completely logical and in a polite tone. Uh, the tone I just had right now, people could perceive as as angry um, and then and then, from like a you know from an artist' theater you know background, uh, I go see a lot of plays that 's what I do. I love seeing plays, I love seeing my friends in plays. And there, there is this um, huge problem when black and brown folks go to the theater and they experience it in a way that feels authentic to them, but before they can actually have the experience or in the midst of having an experience of laughter or joy, uh, they get shushed by, by white audience members. Um, it happens all the time. I've watched it happen to my friends. <laughs> it's happened to me, um, and and it just it makes you feel like you can't be yourself at the theater, right? Um, and it it happens in productions that require feedback and mm-hmm. and uh, you know audience engagement and audience members who traditional theater goers um, are not used to that, and and there's this sort of struggle that's happening, and so there are theater companies, um, there's one in town called Speakeasy Stage whose who's, uh, season has a lot of shows that um, may appeal to a demographic other than their usual, and uh, they actually put out a statement that said, listen, we have community expectations, and those expectations were not quieting of the, of the POCs in the room, but those expectations were people are going to come in here and they're going to experience theater in the way that feels right for them and you need to deal with it. And if it doesn't work for you, then don't come to see our shows anymore. And I think that's the statement that more companies need to be making because when we go to museums or when we go to concerts or when we occupy places like this, like we're not going to stop being who we are and living authentically just because we're in a space that is occupied mostly by white folks. So um, you know, I, I think those are two situations where I know I've had to... like figure out and juggle like oh my god how am I gonna how am I gonna function in this space you know
4: how how do you feel about the fact that a statement actually has to be made to allow people to be themselves
2: I mean it's crazy but um it clearly is needed because it it continues to happen I mean I was somewhere the other day and oh 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 I was uh, I was watching sweat at the Huntington and uh there was i mean it's a it's a good play right and there's people behind me who were like oh what's going on my god you know they were trying to figure out what was going on and and they were engaging with this beautiful production and the older white man in front of me turned around and shushed them and and my head spun around like the exorcist and i was like well you know (laughs) i'm trying to figure out what to do and i don't and i don't know what to do because then i'm talking you know and then i get kicked out you know like and i got to work there next yeah. week you know so uh, <laughs> so it's it's tricky it's tricky but i i think that those it's sad that those kind of statements have to be made but i think that it's up to the white led organizations to make the statement to their people like y'all need to chill yeah. so, <laughs> you know maybe that should just be the message
5: they send like y'all need to chill right yeah, i don't know <laughs> i it's just a play right i totally understand what you're saying uh I think it's encouraging because I mean, the status quo has just been y'all need to be quiet. So now that the institution that's opening the doors is trying to make it actually more inclusive to people who have not traditionally been there before, I think is a step in the right direction. So hopefully in the future, it won't be necessary, but in the attempt to change culture, sure, I'll take it. Better than still being shushed.
2: And I, I tell, you know, when I talk to uh, producers all the time and they ask about this audience, you know, and like, what, you know, I say, black people uh, come from a tradition of call and response. Yeah. So you can't expect me to sit here and, and, and get feedback, you know, input from somebody <laughs> and not give feedback, right? So you have to understand culturally. Where people are coming from, and if you're going to do shows like Choir Boy, like Passover, like Sweat, that have large black cast in them, and you, and you're trying to appeal to a more diverse demographic, then you've got to understand the culture, right?
5: I think cultural competency is a huge thing. Oh, was just uh, <laughs> so so much. Uh, I think to be specific about what I mean, what I mean is understanding non. White Protestant culture uh, in different spaces. So, as another Black Jewish person on the panel, isn't that crazy? There's two Black <laughs> there Jews two of up us. here. That's insane. <laughs> that like never happens. We are not all the same. Uh, One of the things I struggle with professionally from a Jewish perspective is a culture of, like, mutual interrupting. And I feel like in a professional space that's perceived as being rude. And I'm just like, oh, but that's really comfortable for me. And it's like, it's not that I'm not listening to you. It's that I'm trying to add to this conversation. And we're on the same wavelength. And I have recently become very self-conscious about that.
4: Sheesh. (laughs) 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 So we, we we're kind of rolling off that idea of how we, we don't want to, but oftentimes we find ourselves <clears throat> tempering who we are. Um, in that spirit of tempering ourselves, what are some of the sacrifices that you feel you may have made in regards to your blackness, your womanhood, in this space of the arts, in order to continue pursuing your practice, in order to continue using art as activism? What are some of the sacrifices you feel like you've made or maybe even your family has made on your behalf to continue to support you in what you're doing?
6: OK, I could talk about this one now.
4: OK, <laughs>
6: I was waiting for it. OK. <laughs> um, by a show of hands, how many people know what the MECO program is? Raise your hand. Oh, good. Whew. All right. So for those that don't know, uh, MECO stands for the Metropolitan Council for Educational opportunities, I still remember it. Okay. Um, and it's it's basically in a nutshell taking inner city kids to the suburbs for further education. But it's a choice. Like yes you can sign you, you can be signed up to be a part of it, but as a kid you have to make the adult choice if you want to go through the program for twelve years. So if you can imagine ninety-eight black kids each in their own little places, waking up at five o'clock in the morning to get on a bus that's gonna take you to a place you don't know, and somehow you're supposed to further your education. That was my life for 11 of 12 years. And in those 11 years, the greatest sacrifice was getting up to not only code switch, but to leave my hood, leave my family, In hopes, not for the education, but for the chance to be seen, heard, acknowledged, and appreciated. And so, for each year of those 11 years, my mother would come to me and say, do you want to continue in the program? And I'm like, yes, I got work to do. A lot of work. And for my parents to make that sacrifice... Who didn't have a car and somehow had to make it out to the town of Sudbury and Lincoln anytime I was in trouble was their greatest sacrifice as well as mine. But in that 11 years was my actual formal training on how to deal with white people shit. Good and bad. <laughs> I like red bell peppers. Um, so, so, with that being said, is that it's a thing. We didn't have that in my, in my place.
4: Uh-huh. So, we're not going to start talking about food does we're it We're not,
6: we're not. <laughs> so, but I say all that because how I show up now is because I had 11 years of training to do it. The little black girl had to grow up real quick on being, on having the best grades to get the best opportunity to then turn around and say to principals and teachers, I'm gonna start a social justice movement for the 98 black kids. We're gonna do a talent show that's gonna showcase our artistic talents. But do scenes that show them, show our white peers, of how you all treat us every single day. Did that for four years. Called Universal Rhythm. Look it up. And it's because of that, those peers, my peers, my POCs, know how to deal with white people shit. All the way around. Now, outside of that 11 years of a sacrifice, growing up, now being a mom... I don't get to see my son, only till the weekends. Because I'm showing up at work, both for Bands Fest, but also for The Gardener, because the vision is bigger than me now. Boston is changing, rapidly. But, I get to walk into a building, or sit at a table, and say, and you are gonna open the door for this artist, because you have to. And the people at the table actually listen because they have nowhere else to go. Every institution in Boston that is purely white led is on the chopping block. It is a good day to be black, for real.
4: We can clap for that.
6: (laughs) I will say that that resilience and that sacrifice is why I fight every single day to be present.
4: Who, who wants to go after that? <laughs> ditto.
2: ditto. Literally. I mean, literally ditto. Ditto to everything you just said. <laughs> um, I have a six-year-old who I never see, ever. Um, and I live with him. Uh, and it's the same. But I, I, I have to do the work that I'm doing, and it is a sacrifice. Um, but I think it is important for him to see that I am doing the hard work. Right? Um, and I try to involve him as much as I can, but it, it it is a sacrifice, you know? Um, but at the end of the day, you know, he'll be able to say his mom did all this really amazing stuff. And I think hopefully God willing, he'll be proud of that, you know? So
5: I guess for me, the sacrifice my family has is, or has made is well, one is always financial. So what does it actually take to support one's education, one's livelihood, that's significant. Um, and distance, I haven't lived near my family really since high school, um, so that was a while ago. I think as it relates to the arts, I, working in this field is a privilege for me. Um, My my grandfather was an artist. Um, and I grew up with my grandparents and my mom, but really my grandparents. Uh, my granddad worked for the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, and he was the first black artist, like, staff artist there. He designed stamps for a living. He was a painter. He sculpted. Um, and so I grew up surrounded by art and design, and that was wonderful. But his life wasn't easy. Like, he... I recently found out. So I knew he used to work as a security guard there. Um, but before that, he actually worked as a janitor there, which I did not know until, I think, his funeral, which was last year. Uh but he worked as a security guard, and how he got the actual job is that he had been in art school, he had been in various art schools, and he was studying in D.C., and because he was in security, he knew all the people who worked in the building, and they had an apprenticeship program, and he knew like the top person who was hiring for it, or whatever, and he was talking to them, and the guy was like, well, let me see your portfolio. And then he gave his portfolio, and it, it was good, so he got the job, uh, which is great and totally changed the story of my family's life. But he had been in experiences before where people had looked at his portfolio and literally threw it in the trash. Like, just disrespectful. So my life, like all the things that have been afforded to me, have been directly because of a black artist who was paid to do his work. And that is my privilege in doing this work.
4: Beautiful, so one, one last question before we open it up to the audience. Elsa, we're, yeah, okay. Um, so we, we've talked a lot about just blackness in general, but we, we have an intersectionality. Lindsay, you and I have the intersectionality of not just being black and a woman, but being queer. So how do you balance where race and gender meet? Um, If anyone knows me, they know that one of my favorite things to talk about is the heteronormative patriarchy. So everything is very male-centric in this world. So as women, we have that challenge. And now we're adding the challenge on top of that of being black. So how do you balance and mitigate and reconcile those two and... Showing up in those spaces, it's like, do I? am I more feminine, am I less feminine? Am I more black, am I less black? Do I say I'm queer, do I not say I'm queer? How do you balance that?
2: I basically introduce myself and I list all the things.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: like, just so you know, oh, exactly. like before we get into this conversation, <laughs> I am black, I'm a woman, I'm queer, I am Jewish. Not in, necessarily in that order, except I'm always black first. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I mean, maybe it ebbs and flows from time to time. I mean, when I'm at the synagogue, I'm clearly more Jewish than maybe when I'm like at work or maybe not, I don't know. Um, but I, I know I think I'm Jewish all the time. Anyway, uh, like right now I'm talking a lot. So, um, but I think that, um, I think that I, I just, I put it for me, I just put it all out there. I mean, I, I try to be as transparent about all the intersections in which I exist so that there's no confusion. Um, and it, is, it has um, not always worked out favorably maybe, um, but I kinda don't care because those are all parts of who I am, right? And I'm, I'm not going to um, downplay certain parts to make other people comfortable. Because I literally don't have time to do that. Um, so, <laughs> so that's like that's my approach, and that's yes. just me and where I'm at in my life right now. Um, but I, I go around. If I had a flag that I could list all those things on there and I could wear it on my lapel or something, I would, because I think it's important for me to be very transparent about who I am.
4: Does Does that transparency make you feel vulnerable?
2: Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, you don't know how people are going to react. But I, like I said, I literally don't have time to care. Mm. Right? I just don't. Um, and it, it helps you filter out the people that you want to work with and the people that you don't want to work with. Because if you have a problem with any piece of who I am, then we're not going to be
5: good collaborators. Right. That's real. I am not sure I do a good job of balancing it. I see myself as black. Um, and I've, I don't feel very attached to my identity as a woman. I'm clearly a woman and identify as a woman, but I don't... I grew up in a home with my granddad, but with my grandmother, my mother, my two younger sisters. I have a strange professional journey where most of my bosses have been women. And a lot of them have actually been um, uh, women of uh, Hispanic origin, which has been another real privilege. So I... I feel that I show up as myself, as in my totality, and I'm not sure I wear, I don't explicitly tell people what I am. I think I, it's something I don't, how to say this? This is really a struggle for me because I feel like I've come into my femalehood rather late in terms of those conversations. So I appreciate. All that I am, but I feel, I guess if I were to evaluate my oppressions, I have always emphasized blackness, and I know that to be a woman is to be disadvantaged in other ways. But I never focused on separating those out because, for me, I assumed whenever I walked into a room, the first thing people would see was that I was black, not that I was a woman, or not that I was Jewish, or any other thing. Um, so I was like, "Well, I'm black, and if you can get past that, or if you can't, that's where <laughs> my struggle is going to be." So
4: that's the first test. <laughs> the litmus test.
5: That's
6: a very beautiful question. Uh, yeah, I just lay it all out there, and you just got to deal with it. <laughs> the the I think the the slight difference uh, or experience that I've had is um, being black first and then height, not necessarily being a woman, and that's because most people never look up. So. I'm often already characterized as a man. My voice doesn't go high, it's at a certain register, so naturally I'm called a sir first, or black man first, which is so bizarre. Um, So I'm dealing with that, because that's very interesting. Uh, But for those that do look up, it's like, oh, you're a woman, great. but I've never had to put one or the other. Like this is who I am. You don't like it? I'm so sorry. Here's a Snickers, <laughs> and we move on. Um, to like to Lindsay's point, I just don't have time. It's exhausting. I have to deal with the fro. It wants to go different directions, and it's got it's got to look to my liking so I can walk into this building. And people don't question. Oh, that's a new hairstyle. It's really not. But like, there's there's already stuff I have to deal do with. Do not have time to get into hair. <laughs> just, like it's just. <laughs> my exchange with people, I would hope, is a joyous one. And so with that, is what you see is what you get. And we can go in after that. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. I think we've gotten a tremendous amount from the women on the panel this evening. So if we can give them a round of applause. <clears throat>